Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 3, Episode 6. Together again. The creature wakes early and starts to cry. I carry it outside and sit in a chair under the early morning stars. The sky is nearly black, tinged with the first hint of sunlight to the east. I've never been much good at sleep, and even worse since the creature showed up. This morning reminds me of those in sand, when I'd wake early and go shooting outside town. It all seems a long time ago. My cabin sits at the end of town, off the main road, and I watch as the lamps are lit in the windows of the cabins near me. Miners waking early to start the day. It's a sad little town on the downslope. A bad flu. A storm. A posse of outlaws could blow it off the map in a day and no one would miss it. Except for me, I say to the creature. Because this is where you were born. I'll always remember it for that. And when you're older, I'll tell you all about it. It's important to know where you started. So by the end, you can see how far you've come. Behind me, the door to the cabin hangs open. Arabesques of sand weave their way along the floorboards, blown in by the breeze. It's a cool morning, likely signaling a blazing day. I so wanted for Nico to have been blowing smoke about Cass losing a step, but after yesterday, there's no denying it. It's hard making sense of mortality, even for someone like me, who's lost so many people. There's a part of me that still thinks of my heroes as invincible, even after what happened to Lobo. What happens to you, my little creature? If I die, who will take care of you? And looks up at me with big, dark, unknowing eyes, its little hands reaching up at the sky. It yawns. It cries. I start to cry. I don't know why exactly, but it happens sometimes when I watch the creature. Watch it yawn, or hiccup, or make bubbles with its spit. I feel simply 
overcome. Your grandma and uncle will be leaving soon. We better get going if we intend on meeting them. It's late morning when they emerge from the front doors of the inn. Cass busies herself with trying to hide her limp, how she winces when she slings her bag over her shoulder. Nico carries most of the gear, tries to carry more without asking to do so, because he knows that would just make Cass spit and try to do it herself. When he sees me, he stops and smiles. Come to see us off? Something like that, I say, unslinging my bag from my shoulder and dropping it on the ground. The creature is bundled up tightly against my chest, snoozing peacefully. Its little heart beats arrhythmically with my own. Cass climbs down the steps. When she reaches me, she puts her hand on my cheek. Her eyes are wet. He would be proud of you, she says. I press my cheek into her hand. I've missed Cass. Missed her like I miss my mother. I, I don't know what you expect of me. How can I fight off a whole army? Cass nods. You won't have to. We ride east, into the heat of the rising sun, Gravesend growing smaller behind us. And as we ride, what Cass said to me before we left repeats in my head. There are more bullet catchers. More. Of course there are more. I should have thought as much when I met Mal in the Northland. All this time, it couldn't just have been Cass and Lobo who'd survived the war. So, what happened to the rest? They disappeared, went to ground, went and holed up somewhere and pretended there was never any such thing as a bullet catcher. And all this time, the gunslingers have just let them be. Let them slowly age and die, or drink themselves to death before old age catches up to them. Avoidance as effective as genocide. If the gunslingers were to have their way, then the last bullet catcher would die alone, unmentioned, unremembered, in darkness. And then, soon, the people would forget. And that would be it. No wonder they want to wipe a place like Watertown off the map. It's not what it is. It's what it represents. It's what it could be, one day. As night falls, the soft soil and sand beneath us turns to hard, brown earth. Sickly trees, black and charred as though set on fire by the noonday sun, interrupt the darkening landscape, torn in places by rocky outcrops and small bluffs and crags. We stop to camp for the night and let out our bedrolls, and start a fire in the shadow of several large boulders. A creature fidgets against my chest. It was a hot day, and its face is red and scrunched in discomfort. Laying it out on my sleeping mat, I clean and change its nappy. It's hungry, and I begin to go about feeding it, when I suddenly become very aware of Nico, my brother, busily frying ham in the skillet over the fire. But screw it if he can't take it. Turning away, I undo a couple shirt buttons and lift the creature to my breast. Cass sits close to the fire, her knees curled up to her chin, the toes of her boots inches from the flame. She clutches her shoulders as though, even so close to the fire, she can't get warm. Her shadow dances on the boulder behind her, rising like a ghost from her body. Tell me about the bullet catchers, I ask, and I'm startled by the most amazing sense of deja vu, of one of the first nights after Lobo agreed to train me. How he stayed up late with me, 
until the sun creased the horizon with light and answered every question I had about the bullet catchers, and each answer was like a fairy tale. Looking back on it now, I understand that even then, he was as grateful to tell those stories as I was eager to hear them. There were six of us still riding together when we finally admitted the war was lost. We agreed to split up, to never talk about the bullet catchers again, to never teach anyone, to let it die. I had lost my son. We all had lost everyone, except one another. But we told each other where we would be, in case we ever needed it. Weren't you afraid one of you would get found out and give away where everyone else was hiding? They could flay the skin from our bones and we wouldn't have said anything. What makes you think they're still where they said they'd be? I don't. But I can guarantee that if they haven't already drunk themselves to death, that they're alive somewhere, Nico says, spearing slices of meat from the pan onto tin plates and passing them around. The creature stops feeding. Its eyes are closed, arms and legs kicking now and then in a way that I know it's dreaming. But I don't want to put it down to sleep yet. I want to go on feeling its breath on my skin, its warmth against my body, its tiny heart that doesn't even know fear or hatred yet. How do you know? Because Cass is wrong. If the gunslingers had found any of them, they'd all be dead. Cass stares daggers at Nico. Her shadow flickers on the boulders behind her, but she doesn't argue. We took to the hills and forests and deserts, the wildlands where our chances of running into anyone, let alone a posse of gunslingers, was slim to none, she says instead. But Lena was different. She was the youngest of us. She could hide most of her scars under her clothes, and she figured the rest she could pass off as nothing to do with bullet catching. She picked the biggest, oldest city south of the border and disappeared into it. So, we head for Jalapa and hope she's still there. We set off at sunrise. Cass is slow to wake, and I can almost hear her bones creak as she drags herself off her mat and stows everything in her bags. Nico kicks dirt on the fire and is up in the saddle while I'm still preparing the creature for the ride, and Cass struggles with the last of her gear. The creature isn't happy this morning. It cries and wails. All it wants to do is sleep. There's a long way to go before we rest, I tell it remembering the words Lobo once spoke to me when all I wanted to do was lie down and give up. But we'll get there, I promise. It doesn't understand you, Nico says impatiently. It understands the tone of my voice. So what do you expect it to get by talking to it so much? I look up at him. That it is loved. I've only heard stories of Jalapa, a Southland city big enough to rival any of the major metropolises of the North. During the war, it functioned as a neutral zone between the gunslingers and bullet catchers, a place where people could rest and have a drink without fear of getting a bullet or knife in the back. As the war rolled over the Southland, engulfing nearly every small town and outpost, many of the families that were displaced moved to Jalapa, and the city grew, out at first, and then up. The spires I've seen illustrations of got their inspiration from the skyscrapers of the Northland. Luxury apartments, running water, electricity, marble imported from the North, and craftsmen from all over to shape it. Paved streets, a tall stone wall encircling its borders. 
I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited to see it. As a kid, washing dishes in the back of Dimitri's, I dreamed of running away to Jalapa. And I'm excited to have the creature see it too, so it knows there's more to the world than places like Gravesend, where the people scrape and claw to put food on the table and drown their sorrows at the saloon, where the handful of old women and old men only hope to dig an ounce or two of water out of the ground to make ends meet. Jalapa is a city of dreams, a beacon of hope in the Southland. It's what Watertown might be one day. Besides the occasional breaks to fuss over the creature, the two-day ride is thankfully uneventful. In the miles leading up to the gates of Jalapa, the earth turns a verdant green. There are rolling hills with lawns of tall grass. We spot deer and foxes and rabbits, grazing and hunting unmolested by any soul. A sparse forest of ancient trees acts as a final barrier between Jalapa and the rest of the Southland. As we cross beneath those boughs, the darkness acts as an artificial night, and the creature, whose complaining has become so near constant that its crying fades into the racket of our horses, coos with the sudden coolness washing over us. We've passed hardly a single soul in the last day and a half. The fact doesn't occur to me until we crest the final hill before the city and lay eyes on Jalapa. The great wall around the city has collapsed, with only a section here and there to mark where it once stood. The rest is rubble, strewn across the ground, as brittle-looking as shattered glass. The spires have broken and fallen in on themselves. From somewhere inside the city, smoke trails up from lonesome chimneys, but other than that, there isn't any sign of anyone around. Cass stares blankly at the ruins of the once vibrant city, her expression hard, giving away nothing. The creature stirs, as though sensing something is wrong. I want to get the creature out of the sun, I say to no one in particular. Let's stay close, Cass says. The city is not as I remember it. We pass through the broken gates. The stations where the guards once were housed are blackened and abandoned. Once we're inside, the city isn't as abandoned as it had appeared from the hill. The paved and cobblestone streets are broken and potholed, winding their way around the once proud buildings, now fallen into disrepair. It reminds me of the rookery. Squatters have made homes within some of the broken houses, exposed by fallen down walls. Others lays on the crumbling stoops that once led to rows of apartments and shops, gone or shuttered now. We pass a spindly old man, dressed in the remains of what was likely once a fine suit, leading an equally bony horse by the reins down the street. Cass hails him, and he tips his hat at us. Outsiders, eh? We are looking for a room for the night, Cass says. Anything that's still anything will be near the city center, he says, and tips his hat again, ending the conversation. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell. 
but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. We wind our way through the city until the street opens up into a large, round plaza. The buildings along the plaza stand tall and largely unbroken. A fountain trickles water at the center, where children play games with rope and chalk. There are stalls set up to one side, where people are haggling with the sellers. At the far end stands a large building, the base of what was once a tall clock tower, broken away now so that only the bottom crescent of the clock face remains the hour hand pointing up into space. We ask one of the stall owners for directions to a decent hotel, and he points us toward the clock tower. We hitch our horses outside the building, and a young woman approaches us and says she'll mind the horses for a few coins. Cass places a few folded bills into her hands, and the girl's eyes go big. She quickly pockets the money, before checking the hitch knots on all the horses. We leave her standing guard and head inside. In the lobby, there is an air of wasted luxury. The wallpaper, peeling, torn, and repaired, shines in faded gold. The floorboards beneath our boots are polished within an inch of their lives, but creak and groan under our weight. The carpets are finely woven, but moth-eaten and faded. Ahead of us stands a large front desk, hewn from that grand northern marble, but chipped and broken at the corners, as though not long ago there was a terrible fight here. Candles burn in masses of wax, melted along the side tables and alcoves, where the remains of broken electric lights stand darkened. A young man with a two-wide grin waits behind the desk, waving us closer. Welcome, welcome, he says exuberantly. Welcome to the hotel that time forgot. None of us say anything. We're all weary from a long ride, and the man's theatrics wash over us like sand in the wind, vaguely irritating. The creature starts to cry. We just need a room, I say, unwrapping the creature from the bundle and holding it over my shoulder, rubbing its back. But of course, he says. Will it be just the one room? Would you like the standard room or the deluxe? The standard is fine, Cass says, becoming exasperated. She snatches the keys from the man's hand, and we leave Nico behind to sort out the money. Up in the room, the creature, bathed and changed, sits in one of the oversized chairs, like a tiny emperor, surveying the faded gilded room around it. Nico enters in a huff, taking off his hat and throwing it on the bed. What's the plan for finding Lena? I ask, making faces at the creature. The city isn't exactly as big as it used to be, says Nico, washing his face in the wash basin, fixing his hair in the mirror. If she's still around, she might not be all that hard to find. She had a way of sticking out, says Cass. It got her in trouble more often than not. I'd stake that if she's here, she's not hiding. 
Down in the plaza, we scout the stalls, the shoppers, the sellers, the person shouting religious verse from atop the plinth, where by the plaque beneath it, there once stood the grand figure of some conquering gunslinger, but where now only remains the figure's feet, the rest having been pulled down during some riot a decade or two ago. I gather all this while listening to the man, mixed into a small crowd, gathered in the shadow of the cotton awning hanging over a woman's fruit stand. The creature happily gums at a small piece of some citrus fruit I've never seen before. I watch a man sitting at an easel, meditatively sketching the broken clock tower. Jalapa is not the place I had dreamed of, but it is also not the ruin it seemed to be at the outset. Nico and Cass peruse the stalls, sticking out like a couple of sore thumbs, but there's no sign of even someone who could pretend to be a gunslinger, so it seems harmless enough to let them go on playing detective. It does occur to me that we are here for a serious matter, and that the road before us is long and endlessly dangerous. But in this moment, in this place of old wealth, where there seems the same languidness some get as they approach old age and want nothing more than to ease into their final years, I feel as though I'm on a sort of vacation. The first in my life. Here, with the creature in my arms, I'm actually enjoying myself. The creature laughs, its little hands reaching up at me as though to grab my lips or nose. I smile down at it. That's right. Uncle Nico and Granny are acting awfully silly, aren't they? Cass has stopped to talk to an old man, sunbathing on the steps of the cathedral, and stores left wide open. From inside shines a cool darkness that can only be found in sacred places. She shakes a man's hand and scans the crowd, looking for me. It's with a certain amount of regret that I stick out my hand to get her attention. Well, little one, I guess the vacation's over. She's here, Cass says. She's the priest, apparently. Nico adds. Great. What are we waiting for? Well, according to the man, no one's seen hide nor hair of her for two days. Any idea where she might have holed up? We'll check the rectory. Maybe she's left some sort of clue where she was going. The rectory door is unlocked. It's a small two-room building, attached to the back of the cathedral, facing an otherwise empty street, where ragged cotton awnings hang over the cobblestones. A narrow blade of bright sunlight cuts a swath down the middle of the avenue, like an electrified arrow directing people out of the shuttered neighborhood. The front door opens right into the main room. In one corner stands the simple bed where, presumably, Lena slept. The sheets are neatly cornered. Above the bed glowers a dark wooden symbol of the religion. I haven't thought of religion since the orphanage, where we were made to study and read and pray. There is a writing desk and a reading chair. Attached to the main room is a small bathroom with an iron tub, toilet, and running water. Looks like wherever she is, she hasn't been here in a while, I offer. No, Cass says. She's been here recently, this morning, I'd reckon. Ain't no dust on anything. There's a depression in the pillow on the bed and the tub is damp. From somewhere unseen, but definitely in the room, comes the unmistakable click of the hammer of a revolver being pulled back. Without thinking, I curl my body around the creature and make a break for the exit, leaping into the cool shade of the street outside, just as the shooting starts. The bullets come from under the floorboards, 
making black holes in the plaster ceiling, raining dust that quickly fills the air. Nico spins and moves toward the wall. The shots pass through the end of his coat, narrowly missing him. Cass dives for the fire poker, grabs it, and jabs at the spot where the shooting has been concentrated, ripping through the floorboards into the dark space below. There comes a shriek and the sound of somebody clumsily dodging Cass's strike. Cass pulls out the poker, taking a patch of floorboards with it. Nico jumps down into the hole and grapples with the figure within. Cass stands with the poker raised over her head, waiting for Nico to move out of the way or get a bullet in the gut so she can bring it down on the other person's head. I yield, comes a woman's voice from the hole. I yield. Nico drags a person from below the floorboards, lifts her up by the collar, and deposits her on the floor in front of Cass. She's an older woman, dressed in black, with a shock of black hair that's come loose from its pins and fallen over her face. Cass lowers the poker. Lena. The woman looks up at Cass. Her eyes go wide. Cass? You got old. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 3 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Marco Palmieri. And executive produced by Molly Barton. Performed by Inez Del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.